This is the current federal tax developments for the week of July the 19th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week we're going to look at what seems to be a lot of procedural type of issues that came up in this week's developments in taxes. And first we're going to talk about is the AICPA essentially confirming something we had heard earlier from a announcement from the, let's see, Associated General Contractors of America lawsuit involving the PPP loan program. This takes it a little bit further that the AICPA is going to tell us about the SBA essentially shutting down uh, the pre-forgiveness necessity uh, inquiries for loans of over $2 million. We're also going to talk about, we're in these days of electronic signatures, we're going to talk about a taxpayer who tried to electronically sign a document that the IRS had not actually ever said you could electronically sign and why it's not very good to be the pioneer in this area, as we'll discuss. We'll also find that the courts found there was no reasonable cause for a taxpayer for filing late when he had decided to, being incarcerated, leave the actual filing and uh, filing of the return and payment of taxes to his attorney. It turns out the attorney in question apparently decided that it would make a lot more sense for him to just take the money and run and not file the tax returns. So bottom line, we had a little problem here. The taxpayer asked for forgiveness or not, you know, saying, well, you know, that should be reasonable cause for late filing. The court said no. And finally, we have a case going the other way for the IRS where the court found the IRS was not substantially justified in two key positions that essentially caused the uh, tax court case that was originally filed. And for that reason, stated that the IRS had to pay attorney's fees. We're going to take a look at the positions, uh, why the IRS might have tried to take those positions, and also why they weren't substantially justified. These are a couple of almost, we could say, pretty easily mistakes you're going to see in exams and the issues becoming as to how you can, you know, think about these issues or at least point them out to agents as to how it does not necessarily going to go well if they push forward from this point. But let's go on to the first document we have. This is an article from Jeff Drew. It was in the Journal of Accountancy on the 12th of July. It's entitled that the SBA officially drops the PPP loan questionnaire. And it actually goes a little bit further and gives us some information about a letter that was sent to lenders. Now, we had previously reported back on June the 28th that per a notice that was posted by the Associated General Contractors of America that stated that they had been told by Department of Justice that in response to their lawsuit over the PPP loan necessity questionnaires that they were going to be withdrawing those forms, not using them anymore, and essentially they would then update the FAQ. But the uh, what happened was late last year, the Associated General Contractors of America had sued the SBA, stating that essentially these questionnaires were introducing standards after the fact. The issue only applied if you had a loan of $2 million or more in the PPP loan program. And if you had such a loan, then the SBA told us late last year, or essentially kind of indirectly very quietly because they gave them out to the banks, that those borrowers would need to fill in one of two questionnaires. The only difference being there was one for for-profit borrowers, one for not for, one that was for not-for-profit borrowers. But aside from that, they asked various questions that made it very clear that it appeared the SBA was going to be considering uh, kind of, you know, certain issues like did, did you cut executive salaries? Uh, you know, did you actually have a drop in revenue after you took this loan out? They're looking at various other criteria to try to figure out this loan necessity. And that became a big issue, you may recall, if you go back to last March, or I should say March of 2020. And you may remember that shortly after the PP loan got started in April, May, we ended up getting these reports of, it was actually three companies, Ruth Chris Steakhouse, uh, St- Shakes. <coughs> Shake Shack, I'll get that name right there, and Potbelly Subs, uh, these were, you know, publicly traded, not not huge public companies, but still 
reasonably sized public companies that went out and got a PPP loan. Uh, and in the case of Ruth Chris, it was actually they managed to work the system to get twice the official amount that was supposed to be the max per borrower. They did it in a way that exploited a bit of a loophole in how the rules were written initially. And that became a big negative issue. You may remember that we had publications. We had Senator Rubio threatening to bring people down for testimony. Uh, they were going to hold them accountable. And all of these threats got run. Well, at the time, what ended up happening was the SBA told us eventually after scaring everybody. And then now suddenly the press goes the other way. And we were told about people who were afraid to borrow from the program. You know, they, they obviously qualified for, let's say, $30,000 loan, but now they were afraid about how could I show I needed it. I don't know what's going to happen. That's the reason why I kind of want the loan. So then the SBA backed off and said, well, we're going to assume that if you essentially have a loan of $2 million or more, that you know we, we need to ask questions. If, you, if that's the size, we think you're big enough that we're going to need to ask questions about your necessity, but not initially. And then if your loan is below that level, then we're not going to ask that question. Okay, kind of a mess we're there. Well, now we get to the end of the program, and the SBA, as I said, puts out this loan questionnaire. They're sued by the Associated General Contracts of America. Now, the AICPA is reported on July 9th. Uh, it essentially sent a notice out to lenders. And at that date, it said that they uh, basically it would no longer request the earlier version of the loan necessity questionnaire, 3509 or 3510, depending on which one you were. Uh, and also, essentially, uh, if you have a request for additional information related to that questionnaire, so they were looking out for more things that they should close the request in the computer system and submit the loan back to the SBA. So it would appear that it's, you know, we're going to see changes. Now, just as we had with the Associated General Contractors notice, the AICPA notice states as well that we are supposed to be getting, the SBA claims are going to put out a new or revised set of FAQs uh, to kind of explain what all this means. And so we're still officially waiting on that. Now, we still don't have an actual copy of that letter. At least the AICPA doesn't have a way. They didn't link to it anywhere we could see. So there's no place to go look at that. And obviously, it's a letter to the bank. The borrower can't really use that because the SBA is not on record anywhere, you know, stating what they're going to do, except what we have about we're going to follow up and check on necessity. But it does appear, and it would seem to make sense, that you know the, the SBA is sort of backing down on this. The one thing you should remember is they do have quite a bit of time, even if they grant forgiveness. There is quite a bit of time during which they can go back and still review that grant. So you do have to remember the statute runs for quite a while. Now I can't even remember right off how long it goes because we kind of went through all this other stuff. But it does run for a number of years. I believe it's five. So we've got a while we may need to defend anyway. So trying to figure out what's in that FAQ is probably going to be significant and probably going to be something that we're going to want to keep a close eye on to make sure that it makes sense. Next up, this is a case of Mills versus United States, the United States Court of Federal Claims. The opinion came down on July the 14th. And this involves the case of the question of what if I use a electronic digital signature platform to sign an IRS document that has to be sent in in paper form? Many digital signing pro, you know, platforms will, you know, clearly, you know, you can have it come out, sign. I know that we use it uh, inside, you know, when I'm asked to sign documents or my contract with Kaplan, you know, we use digital signature programs, digital signature platforms. And those platforms, if you've not used them before, and I think most of us have, obviously, you know, they'll produce back a printed copy of the document. And yes, you can even sign that document on the screen. You know, if, if you have now, I know that some some of the products do suggest that signing on the screen uh, as opposed to just typing the name uh, that works a lot better if you're working with a tablet and a pen. But, you know, but you can do it if you want to with trying your finger on a trackpad. It doesn't work real well. But you can try that. Well, this is a case of a taxpayer who tried to do that to file a claim for refund. So let's talk about the case. 
This was a case involved for Mr. Mills. Mr. Mills was a taxpayer living in Australia initially that worked for a U.S. defense contractor. And because of that, he ended up moving one time in the midst of this too. Now, he apparently heard about a firm, a tax consultant, who specialized in working with uh, U.S. citizens who were living abroad. And so he had them go and take, take a look at his tax returns. And this consulting firm came back and said, hey, you know what? Really, you really were entitled to and you didn't claim the foreign earned income exclusion and the tax exclusion for the employer provided lodging that he had included that on the return. Uh, those are pretty basic mistakes, let's say, probably. I assume that's a better choice for him than taking the foreign tax credit on certain issues. So, you know, the, with the trade-offs for the foreign income exclusion, etc., which probably it was. So they, you know, they, they said, well, you we really should file a claim for refund to get back the taxes from those years that, you know, on your original 2015 and 2016 return. So we need those returns amended. Now, the taxpayer was in Australia, and it's not clear at this point why they went this route, but they did. Rather than have the taxpayer sign the amended return, they had the consulting firm representative sign the return on the taxpayer's behalf. And this is one, and actually we've seen this come up a couple of times. Uh, you know, it seems like maybe, you know, some organizations were regularly doing that. I suspect they did it because for, a, you know, they got away with it for a long time. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things where the IRS doesn't always check that in great detail. So, you know, it's one of those things. It's probably one of those things that may be very instructive about be careful doing things because, hey, the IRS never questions this or the IRS, well, if they have a right to, we get in trouble. In this case, what happened, they had signed that. Uh, they also, you know, didn't have a power of attorney initially. They got one later. That power did not give the right to sign. And you need to also carefully check because it's only very limited circumstances in which a taxpayer can sign over the right to sign a return. And this, I don't believe, would have qualified for any of those requirements anyway, so irrelevant. But in any event, you know, the party didn't have the right to sign. The IRS eventually noticed that the signature was not that of the taxpayer. So the IRS said, came back and said, sorry, we can't handle this claim for refund because the documents have not been signed. Right. So the representative signing, that, yeah, didn't really work. Right. So now the IRS has come back a while later. And again, the clock's running on this. So, you know, we have a 2015 return. So it was filed on 2016 in April, and it's November of 2018 when he filed the 1040X. Obviously, it takes a while. So with the clock running out, the IRS says, wait, you know, we don't have these aren't signed. So the taxpayer now in the interim has moved from Australia to Afghanistan. Okay. And as you might guess, if your defense contractor is assigned to work in Afghanistan, it's a little more complicated to get things done than it would be otherwise. And it's not as if, you know, FedEx planes were like flying in. You could just quickly FedEx your signature out. But that'd be nice and easy to get the documents in and out and get all this done on a very short time schedule. So what the taxpayer tried to do in this case was he went ahead and he used an electronic signature service, right? And that electronic signature service, uh, basically, you know, would put his signature, right? You know, you sign that on whatever, on your tablet, your phone, whatever. And it would allow you to, you know, check, put that on there and be able to then have somebody back in the U.S. who now receives that transit, who now receives that document that's electronic allows them to print it out. So it allowed him to not have to get the physical document back to the U.S. and filed in time for the statute before the statute ran out because essentially the IRS's request was, you know, in late in 2019 with the clock running. Now, we don't know how much time they really had on the statute for 2015 because we don't know when he really filed his 2015 return, but presumably the clock was running and probably and was certainly going to run out no later than October 15th. 
So we were running into a time problem, and it was probably felt that you know, they weren't going to make that time, so they tried this. Now, here comes the catch. The IRS says, nope, you know what? The electronic signature, we're not accepting that. So, and the problem is under 7422A, essentially, and the regulations under it, if you file a claim for refund, you need to essentially uh, electronically certify, or not electronically, but certify the validity of your claim. And you do that by signing the document under penalty of perjury. Now, the question becomes, did the taxpayer, before the statute ran out, actually submit a claim for refund to the IRS that was signed under penalty of perjury. Now, the court noted that the IRS doesn't have a whole lot of guidance on what a signature is, what sign or signature is. But And they noted that Congress in 1998, in Section 6061B1, had directed the IRS to develop measures to accept electronic signatures, right? But the problem with 6061B1 is that it essentially, uh, you know, didn't really put a time frame on this. And I realize 1998, 2021, it's been a while, but there was no actually restriction put on there, right? And so it'll develop it. And the IRS obviously accepts electronic signatures. And as a practical matter, every e-filed return is done via a form of an electronic signature the IRS has accepted. That is things like the PIN, right? When the taxpayer puts in a PIN, that's a valid electronic signature system the IRS has developed. As the court points out, there was no equivalent development. And in 2015, you could electronically file your 1040, right? You could electronically file the you know that in place, but you couldn't yet electronically file an amended return, a 1040X. Now, the court said, well, here's your problem. You know, despite that 1998 law, that law just says the IRS shall, you know, the IRS will develop procedures. And also, though, says in the interim, uh, they can, but don't have to, develop procedures to waive the paper signature requirement on certain forms. The court said, here's our problem. Uh, the amended return form did not actually ever have any procedures at that point developed to allow for an electronic signature. Because of that, you still had to do a pen and paper. Pen and paper were the only type of signature that were authorized. So for that reason, it's going to be a problem for you. The court rejected it saying, look, you know, Basically, they said, look, 6061B1 does not on its own authorize everybody to go file any form of electronic signature you want. Rather, you have to do what the secretary says, you know, how the IRS says to do it. And they also say that the generic rules, because they tried to use some more generic things, like you may read that on many of these services. Yes, your signature on electronic document is legally binding. True, but... Your problem with that true but is the problem becomes it's not really binding to the extent that a taxpayer, uh, you know, is it's not legally binding if there are special rules. And as pointed out, the very kind of law, federal law that authorizes use of electronic signatures generally uh, just said uh, essentially only counts if there aren't other options, you know, if, if there's not. Essentially, if, if other law doesn't override, the court found in this case, other law overrode. The IRS had developed procedures for this. And therefore, that electronic signature does not count unless it is specifically authorized by the Treasury and you follow whatever procedures the Treasury demands. Now, this becomes important because, as you remember, during the pandemic, we've talked about the fact that the IRS has granted some temporary relief on specific forms for using these electronic signing services. Now, why that's important? A, if that and when that relief expires, which it's technically scheduled to do at the end of December now, you know, if they don't extend it again, they have extended it twice already, and they, they're talking about making some of it permanent. 
But if they don't, you know, if they don't extend that again, you can't use it. And then number two, you cannot expand that beyond the forms that are on that listed schedule. And, you know, we've covered this a while back. You know, it covers things like essentially all the e-filing forms can be signed. And it released you from, as I think we have already talked about, since that particular IRS procedural uh, change temporarily has also allowed you to use any form of electronic signature, it appears to have gotten us out of the requirement to use knowledge-based authentication to have a client sign a electronic filing form and authorize us to file. Now, remember, the problem is, and the IRS has said this in Internal Revenue, basically in uh, chief counsel advice, and the court even cited one of these and seems to lean into, yep, we think that's right. Uh, if not specifically authorized, you can't do it. And that came into play because nowhere were we ever specifically authorized to accept an electronic signature in order to file an entity return, except under that temporary special procedure. So come January 1st of 2022, if that's not extended, Yes, you will not be able to accept electronic signatures or anything except 1040s. And for 1040s, you're going to have to do it using a knowledge-based authentication system to authenticate the taxpayer. And we'd go back to those rules. And this case makes clear that saying, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. They'll never challenge it. Uh, Mr. Mills can tell you they'll challenge it. Taxpayer lost the entire ability to claim the refund for 15 and 16 because he never signed the document. Now, we can discuss the back and forth about this and why the first document when it was in Australia was not signed and we had time. Uh, that, that's kind of an interesting discussion as to what goes on. Uh, but it wasn't. I understand in the end he's under a time constraint, but I think the court's theory would be that constraints of your own making because you didn't sign the original document. Don't come to us now and whine about the fact that, well, by the time the IRS complained, there was no time to work. It's like, well, it's kind of your job to get it right, <laughs> you know, when you're filing a claim for refund. And uh, yeah, we're not really going along with that. Next up, another case where the IRS wins. Uh, we do have one IRS loser coming, so you can, you, can feel, you can go for that. But this is another IRS win case. This is the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in the case of Lindsay versus United States, case number 20-50994, coming up on July 9th, 2021. And the Lindsay case, now I don't know, I may not have given you the citation for the previous case. I just realized that. Did I actually do it? That was, uh, when we're talking about the digital signature case, that case was Mills versus United States. It was United States Court of Federal Claims. That decision, as I said, on the 14th. Now, Lindsay's case came down on the 9th. This is the Fifth Circuit, which essentially was looking at a lower court ruling that held the taxpayer did not have reasonable cause for late filing his tax return. Uh, the facts of this case are somewhat interesting. The taxpayer was incarcerated, and at least per the court, it wasn't the first time the taxpayer was incarcerated. Uh, he had been there a few times. Uh, he apparently said, okay, you know, he's in jail. So he, he had his attorney. His attorney was directed to, uh, you know, take care of getting his taxes paid and Mr. Lindsay gave him the money to pay the taxes, and Mr. Lindsay, you know, gave him all the documentation, had all executed all the forms, did everything to get the return filed. Only problem turned out was that the attorney decided that he would just take the funds. And, of course, if he files the returns, there's going to be correspondence on the issue fairly quickly when there's missing hundreds of thousands of dollars. So he just kind of didn't file the return under the theory, which probably I suppose is correct, that it takes the IRS much longer to start worrying about a missing return than it does this. And you can probably cover that up longer and, you know, and kind of control where, the, where these statements go. Eventually, the taxpayer did discover this little problem with his attorney. Might have been when the attorney stopped answering the phone and we suddenly discovered that nobody could find him anymore. Uh, whatever might have happened, you know, the attorney in any event no longer was filing, you know, ended up with this problem. So after he was released from jail this time, 
as I said, the court indicated he'd been there a few times before. So, you know, he may be used to going in and out. I'm not sure about Mr. Lindsay and why he was in jail, but he was. Uh, he went ahead and he filed the delinquent returns. He did pay the taxes, and so I paid twice, one set of money to the attorney. I guess he did sue the attorney. He did win a judgment, so I guess we did find the attorney uh, against him. Not surprisingly, you know, walking off of the client's money to pay his taxes. Usually that's a civil liability if you do it. So he did this, and he paid his taxes, interest, and penalties, as you would have to, then turned around and filed a claim for refund with the IRS, stating that, you know, I had reasonable cause for late filing. I, you know, I reasonably believed that my returns had been filed. I had even transferred the money to get the returns filed. You know, so IRS, come on, give, give us a break here. This is reasonable cause for late filing. There's a problem here, and it's a case we've discussed before. This is United States Supreme Court case from 1985 of United States versus Boyle. Right? That case held generally a taxpayer cannot get reasonable cause relief for late filing or late payment if the taxpayer attempted to delegate the filing of the return to a third party, even a tax professional. This is a non-delegatable duty because it takes no special knowledge to understand that it's April 15th, well, at least it's at one point years ago, it was April 15th. I'm, you know, we'll not, we're not going to see that again for a while either because our two that we're going to get April 15th all got delayed due to COVID. But hey, but let's say, you know, there, there's a date that everybody kind of knows when it's supposed to be filed. You know how to, you know, you know how to put the mail in, let's say, for the mail leaving the facility. So you, you could mail it out and sign it off. So that's not delegatable. You cannot send it away. And so if you do that, you're doing that entirely at your own risk. So if it turns out that your agent was not trustworthy, that's on you, not on the government, meaning that that's where you're going to get penalized. Now, the taxpayer tried to claim, you know, the, the district court said he's sympathetic. They were sympathetic to circumstances, but the authorities simply don't allow for this. The Fifth Circuit agreed. They said, Boyle's here. You know, you could have filed the return. I understand, you know, what happened. But the test is, to get reasonable cause granted, you have to have two things true. Did you use ordinary business care and prudence in attempting to comply with the law's requirements and were you nonetheless unable to pay the tax? And the ordinary business care and prudence is where the problem occurs in these cases. The problem, as noted, is it does not take any special knowledge or any special, you know, special knowledge, special background. Uh, you don't really need to do anything sort of specialized you know, to understand how to mail a letter and how to sign the tax return. This is a different structure. So we have a return. It's ready. It's ready to go. Um, you know, you need to put your signature on it and you need to put it in the mail. As the Fifth Circuit held in a case, I believe it was the Fifth Circuit last year we discussed, uh, you know, they said, look, you can still file on paper. You know, the professional may be barred from filing on paper unless you sign off documents, but an individual has no requirement to file electronically. So he could have signed the paper return and he could have mailed it in, you know, via the mail. He could have done that. He could have directed his professionals to prepare paper returns and that could have done. And so he could have controlled the whole process. So in essence, it's deemed that he has delegated and the fact that the delegate uh, didn't quite do it right um, sorry, again, under Boyle. Now, again, there's, there's, there's really some discussions, and even on some of the cases that have done, you know, the failed electronic filing, has suggested that yeah, it's getting iffier if Boyle makes as much sense, especially if we ever get to the point where you mandate electronic filing, but obviously the individual person cannot electronically file directly with the IRS, and even if you could, I suspect there's going to be an argument that a lot of people would not have the background, technical background, to understand how to do it anyway. So that could get more interesting, but as it stands right now, we can't do it. 
Now, the IRS, they, they tried a second structure. They, they said, well, okay. So, okay, relying on the professional did, didn't work. Tough luck. Our agent turned out to be a bad agent. But we think we could still get out because the IRS Audit Technique Manual for Estate Tax Examiners, which is an interesting place to find it, but it is a place the IRS listed eight reasons the agency would consider to constitute reasonable cause for late filing. Now, since that covers the same code section that applies for late filing, you know, as will apply for income taxes, they said, and I think that much at least is reasonable, that those same reasons should apply. It's reasonable cause for late filing a state tax return. It would also be reasonable cause for you know, late filing the other return. And one of those late, one of those reasons is if there is an unavoidable absence. The taxpayer has an unavoidable absence that renders them unable at the time to file the return. And of course, Mr. Lindsay is saying, you know, uh, basically, you know, th this is an issue of, you know, that that's not really the case, right? It's not really th that position. When you were incarcerated, that's not, that doesn't count. We had cases in the past that said that that doesn't cover this George versus Commissioner, a tax court memorandum decision for 2019-128. As well, same case said, you may say you don't have access to the records, and, you know, the attorney had those. Well, that's also not a reasonable cause. You personally are directed to have records. So they're saying, look, we got the court case here. That's not going to work. And he said he was not physically and mentally capable of knowing, remembering, and complying with a filing deadline. Uh, that, that's an exception potentially for Boyle that was in the concurring opinion that was penned by Justice Brenner back in that case. Now, his incarceration, he claims, rendered him incapable of complying with the filing deadline. Uh, the court found that, well, you know, even if it's a reasonable cause, they didn't find that he was incapable of meeting the deadlines, right? He could have used that. He didn't show why. You know, he could mail letters. He obviously could communicate with the attorney. Why would it make him incapable of being of being able to file the return? So the court came down and in the end said, yeah, we understand the embezzlement of a of your attorney is what causes problem. But, you know, you're, you're not going to get you're not going to be bailed out when, let's say, if your attorney had simply somehow just it slipped his mind about getting the document filed so it didn't get filed on time. You know, in essence, we're not going to put you in a better position, right, you know, if, if the professional does it illegally. Whenever you turn it over to an agent, which includes a CPA or a attorney, you're taking on the risk. Now, I'm going to hold it there for a second. Yes, but. And here's where the problem comes. Well, it is very true that federally the direct liability for the penalty goes back to the taxpayer and they will go after taxpayer assets to get it. That doesn't say the taxpayer now does not have a legal claim against the agent for having caused these damages. So, you know, it's it's one of those little issues. It's just like if, you know, your agent let let's say is driving a car that that you allowed them to drive to perform the service and that car causes damages, yes, you may have to be liable yourself. You have to pay it up. But you probably would have a right to go against that party, you know, the agent. That's your claim against the agent. The first claim's against you, your claim's against the agent. Maybe a little better is what we see in divorce where you might say, well, you know, we, we, we agree uh, Mary's responsible for the Chase credit card. Wayne is responsible for the Bank of America credit card. And, you know, Wayne doesn't pay. Well, Bank of America can still go after Mary because they were both on the either two credit cards. So she could, you know, they can still go after her. And Mary can't say, oh, sorry, my, my divorce said that he's responsible. Uh, no, nope, doesn't work. Uh, you, you still were liable. You borrowed the money. You have a claim now against him. Same little issue here. That's the real problem I'm going to run into here. It's actually better for the professional if the IRS had granted this. And I think that's kind of what the Supreme Court decided as well, was that, look, the person who fouled up here is a professional. And if we grant relief, we're not really granting relief to the taxpayer directly. We're more granting relief to the professional because if the taxpayer pays, it's highly likely they're going to prevail against the professional and get the professional on the hook for the penalty.
So this is one of those details to understand that it's very difficult. And the problem you get here is it's the professional, really all the reasonable cause rules look to why the taxpayer couldn't do it. And while a recent, you know, electronic filing case we discussed where the CPA claimed they never got the notice back from LACERT, was a CPA or EA in that case? I can't remember which one it was, but claimed that somehow LACERT hadn't told them return hadn't been accepted. Uh, you know, was it, was that reason, was that reasonable, you know, did the CPA or the professional act reasonably uh, by not noticing that? And that was sent back for decision at the, at the district court level. So there is some argument that maybe in some cases uh, the CPA could get reasonable cause. It's still a lot tougher than it is for the taxpayer. So be aware of that when you're doing it. And the problem is with electronic filing, we have now moved the requirement for filing onto the professional. The execution there is is a potential big problem. So be aware of it. And also, as I said, you know, be careful there. Yes, the IRS has in the past been somewhat understanding in that area, but there's a catch here. They don't have to stay understanding. And that's one of our problems here. Boyle, certainly the way the courts are interpreting Boyle in recent cases, it appears if the service wants to go after the professional, they're going to succeed in doing it. Finally, I told you we would have one case the IRS is going to lose here today. This is Morial, and I'm probably mispronouncing the gentleman's name, I'm sure, versus Commissioner Tasker Memorandum Decision 2021-90, issued on July the 15th. Now, this is a taxpayer. The taxpayer had hotel and restaurant operations in Denver, is what it is. And he ran into some problems, in fact, in 2011-2012. Uh, he didn't get around to filing his tax returns. He was in financial difficulty. In 2013, he filed for bankruptcy, right? And so it comes in, it's got unfiled returns. The IRS's bankruptcy specialist basically refers the case to exam to assist in preparing substitutes for return for 2011 and 2012. Well, the agent talks with the taxpayer. The taxpayer and the taxpayer's attorney agree to prepare up the returns in question. The returns in question are promptly prepared by the taxpayer and the attorney. Uh, because obviously this is going to be a key part of figuring out how the bankruptcy works, and was delivered to this revenue agent in the examination division. Now, this agent looked at the returns, and he came up with a series of proposed adjustments to the return. And they ran primarily from two issues that the revenue agent raised. First, the revenue agent said the taxpayer had not submitted basis substantiation for a particular LLC, which operated two restaurants. Okay. And then secondly, the taxpayer had improperly reported his income on the accrual basis of accounting. And we said, nope, it should have been cash basis of accounting. So therefore, we're going to say accrued but unpaid expenses were disallowed. Okay, let's talk about those two issues and then also some of the facts behind them. First one is lack of basis. Now, we're not told about why this particular, you know, what exactly basis had, what impact basis had on this. You know, basically, what impact did basis have on the return? But it's likely he was either claiming losses from this uh, LLC, which I guess I'll assume it's an S corporation since the case tells us that it's, you know, he owned all of it, but we're worried about basis. So presumably it's not a single member LLC, but rather it is a, you know, S corporation. Could be a partnership, but then he can't, if he owns 100%, it's not really a partnership. So whatever, he doesn't have basis to claim the loss. Or he didn't have, or he got distributions and he can't show that those aren't taxable. So money came out of there. He has no basis computations to show that, in fact, these are not taxable distributions. So those are our basis issues. Now, and this is something I do see raised in exam. I've seen it before, you know, where they come in 
And, you know, one of the things you're going to ask to see is a copy of the basis computation for this taxpayer. That is something that actually is supposed to be attached in the case of an S-corporation to Schedule E if you have losses or distributions. In fact, a couple of years ago, they had the checkbox. But even further back than that, you will find that in the Schedule E instructions. We don't have a similar instruction for partnerships, so be aware of that. But basically, it's not there, so that's there. Well, the parties went back, and the taxpayer's accountant was able to prepare a detailed basis schedule. And that detailed basis schedule uh, had a full basis calculation prepared by the accountant that was emailed to the revenue agent in, you know, basically shortly after the request, after he had raised this issue. It turns out that apparently the revenue agent... uh, it appears, well, we'll get well, this in a second, but it looks like he probably needs to check his email a bit better. The other issue, cash basis of accounting, this one is probably one that surprised a lot of people when I said it. It's like the IRS questioning accrual basis. Well, there can be a reason why they would have to file cash. They might say, look, generally, if merchandise is a significant income-producing factor, then the IRS regulations require that you be reported on the accrual basis of accounting, right? You have to report on the overall accrual basis. And so reporting on the cash basis would arguably for a restaurant be inappropriate generally. Now, I realize this is back before we got the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So I do realize there were a couple of potential revenue procedures you could have used to enable yourself to file on the cash basis. And, you know, we don't know, you know, if he met those qualifications or not. Again, remember, he's asserting he's a cruel basis. But we don't know. But even if he was not allowed to be on the cash basis, if he had reported previously on the cash basis, now you get to the basic problem we have in the code, which is that you cannot change your method of accounting under Section 446E. A taxpayer must obtain the IRS permission to change his or her basis of accounting. Now, changing from the cash basis to accrual, whether cash was proper or not, is, uh, is something you can do under an automatic change for a Form 3115. So you file the Form 3115 with the tax return. You automatically change your accounting method. So that could have been done, but the problem is to do it automatically, you have to file a 3115 in duplicate with a timely filed return. And obviously, he hadn't timely filed either one of these returns. And they hadn't prepared a 3115 in any event with the returns they did prepare. So if, in fact, he'd been filing on the cash basis prior to uh, the years in question, then the agent would be correct. He should be cash basis until he asked for permission to change his method of accounting, at which point then he could have gone to the accrual basis. Obviously, you know, I suspect he had a lot of unpaid payables, you know, or think things that got paid on, you know, longer terms. So probably his payables were a little bit bigger than normal. And that's why this would make a big difference. They were growing. He was borrowing from suppliers you know, and stretching them out longer periods of time. So, yeah, it might make some sense why the cash basis would show income while the accrual basis was going to show losses, potentially. In any event, the problem becomes, of course, that, you know, the revenue agent is saying, oh, he's on the cash basis, he needs permission to change. Well, revenue agent can't just kind of assert that out of thin air. Rather, we need to figure out where that came from. You know, the taxpayer is saying, I reported on the accrual basis. That's how I report. You know, I don't do that. But the agent had apparently talked with a prior preparer for this guy. And again, we don't know why prior returns weren't submitted. Maybe nobody has them. Who knows? But in one conversation with a prior preparer, the revenue agent had apparently gotten that party to say that, oh, yeah, yeah, we filed on the cash basis. However, the court noted, at the same time, the revenue agent was still making changes to inventory and, you know, and recording inventory changes, making adjustments based on having inventory at the end of the year. 
And so now it's like, now you're arguing for a hybrid method. Well, the court comes back. So we have two issues here. Uh, once they filed, you know, the, this IRS I issues the notice. The IRS, you know, comes out and, you know, goes this way. Taxpayer files to go to tax court. Now the IRS files their answer, asserting the same thing the revenue agent did, but they kick it back to appeals. The appellate conferee, when he got the case, was not terribly impressed with the IRS's position. First thing, the revenue agent, first thing, appellate noted that email that had basis. And yet, nowhere had the revenue agent done anything with it. It's like you said, you didn't prove basis. You have a document here that outlines in detail how basis was, how, you know, the computation of basis for prior years. He didn't ask for information on it. He didn't ask for support related on it. He didn't ask for anything about this email. And appellate conferees look at this and say, well, this appears to justify that he had basis. You know, so saying, yeah, all these basis related adjustments, okay, toss those. And when it came to the basis of accounting, appellate conferee also was not terribly satisfied there. He said, I don't really see there's any indication that they had ever filed any way besides accrual. It's accruals required. There's no indication they had previously filed differently than what was required. And, you know, you're making inventory adjustments is inconsistent with your theory that they were cash basis anyway. So, you know, appellate conferee essentially said, you know, guys, this should be settled with full concession. No question. Now, the fact that it was that way is fine. And okay, so the taxpayer got out. But now the taxpayer is trying to collect, uh, you know, legal fees. And the court said, okay, look, they only can get that. They get that if they prevail. Well, they're the prevailing party, you know, clearly. Absolute prevail. But they don't get it if the IRS was substantially justified. And the IRS can be substantially justified even if they fully concede the case. And they're saying, we're looking at overall justification here because this case would go to the Tenth Circuit. That's where cases from Denver would go. And the Tenth Circuit, when they look at this, they look at the overall. They're looking at the case as a whole, was it justified? So it's kind of an all-or-nothing test. Not, as the court points out, in most other uh, circuits where we look at item by item to see the unjustified items so that you could get fees for the fact that some items weren't justified, even if others were. They said, here, we got to do it overall. But even looking at overall, we find overall this was not justified. That, you know, as I said, look, you totally ignored, you asserted basis error, you asserted lack of basis after you're presented with evidence of basis that you ignored. Right. I mean, the agent was sort of confused. He didn't remember seeing it, but the records he had, the file had it, everything had that email in it. So it's like, yeah, you got it. You just didn't pay attention to it. And on the basis of accounting, yeah, they, they were not satisfied with what he saw as the evidence had previously been cash basis. As we noted, accrual was required. You're asserting that they were doing it other than the required method. We need a little bit more than some vague statement from the former preparer uh, to go down that path. You should have had something better than that to try to assort this because I think, frankly, the court also believes that, you know, per your regs, really cash basis wouldn't properly state income anyway. And so you're, you know, you're trying to do this on very flimsy evidence to force them to report a way that misstates income, uh, which, yeah, you, you'd have them hands down if you literally could nail the bit they've been cash basis, but we're not just going to let you do this, which looks like more speculation than may have been cash basis in some prior returns. So sorry, guys, you lose it. IRS position is not substantially justified. Uh, I'm sure people have at times run into cases like this with agents. Uh, yeah, you know, normally if you push it up the line, you go. Uh, normally we see this now. One issue that came up here was they didn't get most of their fees. Part is because there's a statutory rate on fees. But the other part was that this started the bankruptcy court. And they elected to transfer this over this issue to the tax court. Well, the tax court said, look, all we can award you are fees for what's before us. You had to ask the bankruptcy court 
to award you fees for everything that happened in the bankruptcy up to this point related to this issue, up to the point that we swung it back over to the tax court. So they're saying, you know, really, you know, we, we're not going to go back and award you based on all of those prior fees. So that's one you should have talked about the bankruptcy court because that wasn't before us. You know, that, that's not really our area. So, you know, one of those things kind of interesting and again, seeing, and also those two issues, they're not all that, there's something agents could go for, uh, you know, be aware of those issues. They're real issues. Uh, in this case, the agent just had no basis to push them. But, you know, basis challenges are normal and you can't willy-nilly change method of accounting without the IRS's permission. You have to remember that as well, even if they're doing it wrong. Well, we'll see you back next week here as we bring you some more stuff talking about current developments in taxes. Again, I do pay attention to the various listservs uh, in Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, and also the one that just started up in Idaho. If you're on there, you can take a look there. Uh, as well, you know, you can email me, edzollerscurrenttaxdevelopments.com. We are starting to do some actual courses, again, coming up in August. I'm going to be going back to in-person. Uh, that'll be interesting, shall we say. At least that certainly is the plan at this point, unless things radically change. We've got that ready to go. So I've got three days coming up in August for Arizona, uh, one on trust tax income taxation trusts in the states, one on uh, assisting the seeds of the assisting the uh, survivors of the decedent's estate and then advanced partnership taxation day. That ought to be really interesting and fun. We got those three days of that. And for those of you in Arizona on Thursday, I will be talking about the Arizona tax law changes for the society. So those of you will see you there other places around the country. I'll be doing sessions both online and even a few out traveling about. We'll see how those numbers change as we go later in the year. But I have at least a couple on the on the table right now that are going to be live coming up later this year as things stand at the moment. To be actually in person. So we'll see how things go. But otherwise, take care. And we'll see you back here next week and talk about more current federal tax developments. <music>